On this track, you can hear about the making of the player in scene-specific commentary by director Robert Altman, screenwriter Michael Tolkien, and director of photography Jean Lepine. This collage of comments runs the entire length of the film. This is Robert Altman, and I've been given the opportunity to look at my film, The Player, and uh, talk about it. I love the film very much. It was a great experience for me, and I love my collaborators, which is all of those names that you see at the end of these films. There are hundreds of them. They were all equally involved in creating this essay. I call it an essay. The Player. This is Michael Tolkien. I wrote the novel The Player, and then a few years after I wrote it, I adapted the novel and wrote the screenplay and then co-produced the movie. I wrote The Player because I was trying my best to get out of Hollywood. I had been here for about six years after having spent 10 years in the East. I came here with the dream of knocking them dead in Hollywood and getting to make movies that were some combination of Fassbender and Steven Spielberg. And after six years here, I could see that I was never going to achieve that. And I wanted to do something with my life that had some uh, meaning to it and that also, on some basic way, I wanted to be able to get my work to the marketplace. I started writing this novel to see whether I could actually write to the edge of the margins on a piece of paper. Over the course of a few years, this idea, which was basically a joke, evolved into the book. My name is Jean Lepin, and I'm going to talk to you about the work I did on the player. The overall direction is always coming from the script, when you read the script. And when I met Bob for the movie, we didn't really talk specifically about how to shoot the movie, because I've been working with Bob since a long time. So I know what he thinks, what he wants, what he likes, in terms of camera work and movement, especially. So there was no direction, specifically. We didn't talk about the way we will shoot the movie. The player offered me an opportunity to use certain genre techniques or a certain type of color to express certain ideas that were in the player. So I was able to always slip into that this is a movie. This is what a movie about this would look like. And I went further back into older movies. So many times the film will go along and then suddenly it'll seem to go into a Oh, a little different style. And those styles are very acceptable considering the totality of the player because it's what it's made up of. It's about movies, it's of movies, and consequently I was able to use movie techniques and systems and things that are indigenous to movies in order to express that. The book was never meant to be a pure act of revenge against the industry, although I was happy to be able to take out my frustrations. Actually, to me, one of the, the few calculations I made was that I knew that most Hollywood novels are written from the point of view of a screenwriter who is morally, if not aesthetically, superior to the crass pig producers and studio executives. And I wanted to reverse that and make the studio executive the morally sensitive center of the book and make the writers peripheral to the system and to the process. Partly because that was my experience of it and partly because I felt that there was a kind of unjustified and vain self-righteousness in the writer's 
positing of himself as uh, superior since the writer contributes as much to the crap that comes out of Hollywood as does any executive or any number cruncher. Tom Newman did a wonderful job on this music. I wanted the music to sometime be like film music of old films, to be right on the nose. And at other times, I wanted to just lay back there and kind of wait for you. I'm really pleased with the score he got out of it. I didn't want the score, as usual, to bring attention to itself, but in this case, we did want to bring attention to it, as you would think about it in other films. Since I work with Bob, he never told me not to do a shot. He always let me do what I feel that I should do. Sometimes we do it again in another way. Sometimes he said, you know, well, give me this a little bit tighter, or give me this a little bit different. But he will never say, don't do that. The opening eight-minute tracking shot is a conceit. It's what people talk about. People talk about, oh, that wonderful shot that went on for X number of minutes in Touch of Evil or all the various films. Film buffs talk about that. We work very hard on that shot, and it's a rather well-done shot. But all said and done, it's not really storytelling. The shot itself becomes storytelling, rather than the elements within the shot. Using the thing as the thing it is becoming, and constantly telling you, this is a movie, here's a signpost, here's a signpost, constantly. Some director comes with a storyboard and they put a lot of emphasis on pre-thinking about the shot and the scene. Bob is not like that. Bob knows the scene, but he doesn't want to orient it right away visually what the actor will do or in what context the actor will work. He prefer to go with them, explore the situation, the mise-en-scene and the location with the dialogue, with their emotion, and then decide where we're going to be to shoot the scene. Some people can say that he improvise, but it's a planned improvisation. And when you understand that principle, then you can work and you can pre-light, you can do your pre-work, but always be ready to change. One of the things that I think people like about the play is not something they realize that they like about it. It's about contemporary life. It's about social reality. And there are very few films made now about the world we live in. Even though this looks somewhat exaggerated, these are people who are not facing monsters, are not being heroes. Even though on one level it's a crime story, on another level it's a movie about office politics. Office politics in the 1990s. This is a film about reflective behavior. So it's like looking in a mirror with a mirror behind you, and there's a mirror behind the mirror behind the mirror, and the reflections become a soup of attitude and feeling. That's the general thing that I like about a film like this. I mean, I, people will come up to me after seeing it, and they'll say, oh, this was really... And the less articulate they are, the better I feel about the job that I did. Because I'm not so interested in having anybody come out of a film saying, oh, I know what that was about. But having them say, gee, that was 
right. That was real. That was truthful. I don't quite know what it was, but it was right. That to me is the ultimate compliment to the work. I don't know why I choose actors for parts in films other than I make some kind of connection with them. I had met Tim Robbins about a part in Shortcuts. I liked Tim. I didn't realize how really powerfully endowed he is until I made The Player, and then after that had seen Bob Roberts, the film he directed and wrote. Tim just clicked subliminally. I said, that's the guy, and that's who I stuck with. And that's the way most of my casting is done. It's whoever seems to want the part the most and seems to have the most energy and to invest in it is who I usually end up going with. It's one of the happy improvements uh, all over the novel. I think that uh, the Cynthia Stevenson character, Bonnie Chereau, in the novel was a bit of a caricature. And as we started rewriting the, the film with the actors in mind, and as the habeas corpus story developed, I just found myself giving her more to do emotionally, and she became less of a joke. Some of that was just sort of the necessity of, uh, of the balance of the story and making sure that somebody in the screening room didn't like what they were doing with habeas corpus, and some of that was just Cynthia's warmth. Okay, about five. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Sandy. We're trying to continue the same kind of feeling of a shot as the opening was, so it doesn't look like we're suddenly jumping into a different kind of film here. We're using the old joke of the banker's son who's going to come to Hollywood and try to get as many girls as he can. Business or pleasure? A little of both, I hope. And everybody treats him right because he's the, the link to the money. Yeah, Pete's work, doesn't he, Christian? The banker's son was just one of these characters which started out with one line in the background and then got more complicated. Do you know Meg Ryan? Do you know she's seeing somebody? Um, yeah, Brad, she's married. Shit. What about Winona Ryder? These names, Meg Ryan and... Winona Ryder and these people that we use in this, were, these are girls that attracted him. So we weren't trying to do this for any other reason than to make it very natural for the, for the actor, let him select who he liked. What about this one here? Has she done anything? Celia. Griffin, don't ask. Tim knew how he was going to play this character, and... He tells me, and I photograph it. I mean, I, I'm not sitting there telling him how to act. Look, if it's, if it's Reggie Goldman you're concerned about, forget it. But be nice to him. He represents a lot of money for That's this. That's not Reggie Goldman I'm worried about. It's Larry Levy. We're starting to keep planting this name of Larry Levy as much as possible. Reggie Goldman is the, the guy inside who's the son of the banker who really doesn't have anything to do in the whole movie except be one of those guys. He's worried about losing his job, that there's rumors about this Larry Levy guy coming in. What? No, we couldn't sign Angelica Houston for that project. She's booked for the next two years. We had already shot the Angelica Houston scene that's following, so we used Angelica Houston in this conversation just to give a transition to the scene that we'd already shot, knowing that Angelica was and uh, Johnny Cusack were in this scene here with Larry Levy and Joel Gray. These people all just showed up 
This could have been 10 other celebrities, but these are the people who could show up that particular day. You'll see in one of these shots, Brad Davis, Martin Mull sitting over there in the corner. Nothing's ever said about him, but he's there. I said, I can't tell you how to act or how to play this character because you're representing yourself. So you're fully responsible for yourselves. And it's probably the hardest acting job they've ever done because that's the one person they never do play as themselves very much. They're impersonating themselves. Auto impersonation. Back in the background over Griffin's right shoulder is uh, Brad Davis. Brad died about two, two, three weeks after this was shot. This was the last probably film performance he made. He'd played Captain Quig for me in the Kane Mutiny Court Martial. It was very shocking. I wasn't even aware he was sick when he was there. We went through this handshaking and stuff. And these guys always introduced themselves by saying, oh, Angelica Griffin Mill. They mentioned their own names because they don't want to be embarrassed for the fact that nobody knows their name. And in most cases, they don't. So, you know, Angelica and Cusack knew exactly how to handle this guy because they run into that every day of their lives. <laughs> it's getting as close as you can get to reality, and we're just drifting back and forth across the line as much as possible. Now we're coming into our first melodrama here. When Griffin comes to get his car, and we get the, it's the second postcard now. So now we know this guy's got somebody writing him weird cards. We're setting up the kind of a suspense movie. Now to accelerate this, the next shot, this drawer opening full of postcards, and a little conversation with Jan, his secretary, indicates that he's had many, many of these postcards. Vinaka, that stuff is that he drinks, uh, puts on his tongue all the time. That was uh, something that Tim picked up from one of those executives out there that he was watching. No, I don't think so, Jan. I think they're coming from a writer. Which one? Take your pick. Is there anything else? Yes, your attorney phoned. He wants you to come to a party at his house tonight. You know that this attorney that's invited him is not just a regular lawyer, he's a very important attorney and has a lot of power. Because he suddenly said, oh, I'll be there, of course, no matter what. Sensitive male Bonnie Oh, there she is. The chemistry between Griffin and Bonnie here, they're sort of perfunctory with each other. She would like him to be warmer. He hasn't the faintest idea how to be warm with her. And he makes out with her and kisses her, but it's more like masturbation. I mean, I don't think he really sees her in any human way. Sure. It'll be a early dinner and we'll go to my place afterwards. Can we? Yeah. Oh, this is my favorite cut in the film. I am happier watching the cut from that kiss to Jack Lemmon than I am with any other moment in the movie. It just makes me happy to know that there's Jack Lemmon in this film. Marley Matlin, I think, makes this whole sequence work. How are you? There was a little political correctness there. She also gives a little dignity to it. I think both she and Belafonte added something than just having a bunch of celebrities there. There was there's something a little deeper than that. I don't think you can deal with Marley Matlin as just being trivial. I mean, she's a somebody that's really overcome an enormous handicap. 
Yes. Yeah, absolutely. This party to set up the the real high class, low key of this party. We got Jack Lemmon just playing the piano. Don't you look beautiful? Sidney Pollack, of course, playing this lawyer. I couldn't have another actor come out as some minor actor play this character because he's dealing with all these superstars. Well, so what's better than to have a really super director doing that? Sidney's such a great actor. He knew what part he was playing, and, and uh, we just did it. Why don't you talk to him? Like He's the absolute wizard of all time with the zoom lens. And the camera was always on the far side of the pool for the whole scene. And it only took, I think this scene only took about six or seven hours to shoot. I had to lie that in half a day, so we were able to shoot that scene at night without knowing who will come, really, and also with all that white and uh, with all the glass. No, it was all window. Oh, where do you put the camera? So you don't interfere too much with the people because it was a real party. We didn't know where people will be. We didn't know what will be the action. I just said to my people, like the grip people and the camera assistant, just stand by, just wait. I'll tell you uh, where to go. And then while I'm doing the lighting, I walk around. And finally, I see where the camera goes. And then they, they put the, like, the track in. I lay about 30 feet of track. There's only one, always, only one place to put the camera. You have to find it. For that scene, I used the 10 to 1 zoom. Open at uh, 3.5 T-stop. So I had to put a little bit more light in order to use that lens. This was just a lot of fun at this really sleazy house up in the Pacific Palisades. One of the few sets in, in America that routinely had Dom Perignon on the craft services table. We're getting more plot across, of course, throughout this whole thing. We've gotten our story that he's worried about the postcards and that they're threatening and it's a concern and he knows they're from a writer. He's telling this powerful lawyer this. But in the meantime, it gives me a chance to set up the very casually this kind of social setup of very real people at a party. Shut out, but you better start thinking about a roommate. Relax, you can handle this. You can make him work for you. Larry? Dick. Slimy or clever, depends on what culture you're in. Great party, Dick. Good. Did you get some food? Actually, <laughs> There were no real discussions of nudity in the film. What's great about the film, I think, is that expectations are raised and then thwarted so that it contradicts the expectations of standard entertainment. And, you know, here's Cynthia Stevenson, and then there's Greta Skocky, and you don't get to see Greta Skocky naked, and you get to see Cynthia naked. And I think that's sexier and nicer. The horses snort and whinny. They, too, seem to be feeling her passion. The camera moves in on the nostrils of the horse as the buckboard begins to shake. Now, this scene, I wanted to set up my nudity. This is the only nudity you see in the film, really. Part of the reason when I hired Cynthia, I said, you got to do a nude scene. She says, why me? Nobody ever asked me to take my shirt off. I said, well, you have to in this because I want a nude scene, but I don't want it to be who you think you're going to see nude. And then the idea that she's reading a sex scene in the hot tub from a script rather than seeing a sex scene. 
again, it's this thing with how we cater to audiences. This again became a parody within the film. Actor in this movie were confident, you know? They trust us, so that's the best. Then you don't have problem, they don't have problem, and uh, you, can, you can work. The worst thing is when you're doing a scene like that and people are shy, so they don't act. They try to hide themselves. Then you don't do a, a nude scene. If it were me, one month, three months. This is the obligatory hot tub, bare nipple scene. The hot tub symbolizes opulence in Hollywood and the casualness of them taking the naked hot tub together kind of sets up the that their affair is really one without a great deal of passion and just it's very kind of ordinary. <laughs> we open this with Larry Levy coming over and introducing himself to Burt. Reynolds and Charles Champlin. Feelings. I was only working for Kastner at the time. Now, Elliot Kastner is actually a producer that has a questionable reputation, so not being too ethical. And so everybody in the business laughs when they say, I was working for Kastner, and that's why I, I probably behaved badly, but it wasn't my fault. So that's kind of a double joke. I could not tell any of these celebrities what to say as themselves. I told Bert, I said, here's the situation we're doing. You can say hello to this guy and talk anything you want. He says, well, I'll call him an asshole. That's what I'd do anyway. And I said, well, anything you want to do is okay with me. How are you? Asshole. One of a breed. I like playing with the foreground, middle ground, and background. When you think that the foreground is the most important, and then suddenly, whoops, you just go. And that's the background that becomes the foreground. But you have in mind the, the foreground. Even if you don't see it, you, you have it in your mind. I like that kind of shot. He's fine. You left early, why? I've got a little bit of both conversations going, and again, it gives you the idea that I'm not shoving this scene down your throat, but you're observing it as if you were there. This is what you see, and I push you through that to show what is the information I want you to get. Now we start establishing the water here, the mineral water that he drinks constantly. These bicyclists, I wanted up there. We ordered those guys because you see so much of that nowadays, people out riding bicycles. So it was just another comment on the times. The relationship between Levison and Griffin, I think, is very typical of people who are number one, who are head of any organization and have an assistant who has the capacity to take over from him. I don't think that the Levison-Griffin-Mill relationship is unique to Hollywood. I think that anybody who works anywhere knows that all assistants are a threat to their superiors when the assistants are well-trained and when the superior was somebody else's assistant before he took over. I suppose it's edible. So he's still hanging on. It's starting to look more like a movie. Now we come in and there's a big postcard. And it's the first time the word kill you is being used. In the name of all writers, I'm going to kill you. So now we've got it set up that he thinks and we think that this guy is a threat. Whoever's doing this has access to get very close to him. Anybody can mail a letter, but to get it into a studio, it just brings the threat closer to him because we're making him more and more paranoid. How did this get here? 
the mail. Yeah, but this does not have a postmark. This was hand-delivered. Not to me. It came with the mail. Jimmy! There is a pecking order, and he's sending her to the mail room to do something that normally she would have somebody do for her. He's doing this in order to get her out of the way so he can get into her computer and her books. He's doing this in a very obviously paranoid way so that we know that he's got some plot in mind. We just do this little montage of him going through old date books and writers' names and on computers until he makes a very, very quick decision of who he thinks the writer is. Now, I had to get through this very quick because we're stretching logic here a little bit, that he suddenly just finds the guy that he thinks it's going to be the first time. The music is important here, the close shots, the editing, the whole thing kind of rush this by an audience so that they buy this. Now there, you look in that drawer there, it says, they made me a criminal. It's a poster from an old John Garfield movie, but it's just another one of those little kind of on the nose hints to saying, oh, he's being driven into this. Sort of foreshadows what's going to happen. Looks up these writers, and if you logically really follow this, there is a certain logic to what he's doing, but it's quite a stretch that he would suddenly come up with this name. This is one of those holes you can drive a truck through. Okay. Calchime, Kahane, unproduced. Gotcha. Michael Tolkien. This sequence in here, leading up to Kahane's death, represents one of the real compromises I had to make between the book and the movie. In the book, it's quite clear that Kahane is chosen really at random, and it's very clear that he's murdered symbolically. One of the points that everybody with a checkbook fat enough to finance a movie made, which is that they, when they read the script, they felt that no one would sympathize with Griffin if he murdered somebody at random. And so we had to build up the notion that Kahane was a reasonable suspect who was actively hating Griffin. Robert Altman. The shots through the windows through all this goes into with what films are generally, which is voyeurism, that you're looking into an area that you're not supposed to be seen. So we're taking you into privileged territory, and it just sets up that theme generally. We don't know what this room is, I mean, with all these shower curtains in it, and, and so, so it sets up its, its intrigue, mystery. Oh, the dead man. She says, the dead man, oh, that's a nickname they had for me. Now he thinks, oh, I gotta have the right guy. Well, of course, the truth of the matter is that all these writers hate this guy because he didn't buy their scripts. They're really doing a little flirtation scene here. We're trying to set up the sense of some uh, sexual tension between these two, and it's rather hard to do. We don't have much reason for this. He's on a telephone, she's got Liz with another guy. By doing this voyeuristic kind of thing, it seems to work a little bit. June. Here we go. You want to know my last name? Well, you won't be able to pronounce it. No one can. I think that Geraldine Peroni is a brilliant, brilliant film editor. 
this scene, the idea is really good and it's very sexy and Greta's great in it and Tim is great in it. And I think finding a three-sided living room so that Tim could look at it, all these sides was great. You know, it's a great location, beautifully used. Good dog's water to goulash <laughs> The Greta's doing right now with the ice under her armpits is great. In all the films I've been involved with, I think this is the best edited sequence of all. It just moves beautifully. Bob at his absolute best. No, you'd never believe it. The short one's Iceland. Iceland? Jean Lépine. We were able to play with reflection, with reality, with the dream and the poetry of the dialogue. That was fabulous. This is the kind of scene I like because it's really a scene of a voyeur, and I am a voyeur. I feel a lot better behind the camera than in front of the camera. My imagination and my instinct just direct me for that. This scene was so perfect for this. It was kind of a dream. All that play, that subtleties, works very good with the camera. What's showing? Um, bicycle thief, I think. He went to see the bicycle thief. We're talking about these classic old movies that are considered great movies, not like the crap that is turned out today. And here's a woman who says, oh, I don't care about movies at all, which intrigues him further because everything he knows has to do with movies. Life's too short. I've got to hang up now. I hate movie theater shot because they always overlight. So my challenge was to do this thing that I don't like to make it look acceptable. For that shot, I push the film stock probably to the limit. So it's really low light. You can feel the people in the theater, but it doesn't look like it's lit. It looks like it's a cinema repertoire. It has that kind of twist. In the book, when Griffin is watching The Bicycle Thief, a movie which he's never seen before, he is quite taken with his ability to catch up with the story, and he analyzes the story from a, an executive's point of view, and he's really shocked when the movie ends and the father is disgraced in front of his son's eyes, and he keeps thinking about ways in which a studio would have to change that in order to make it work. This is in one of those interior monologues which couldn't be used in the movie, except that I think some people look at the Bicycle Thief, the clip here in the player, and realize that the, that the film is making a comment on the lost art of the movies. The Bicycle Thief gets everything that Hollywood is not. And it's a terribly sentimental movie, but its sentimentality is honest. It's an earned sentimentality. And most Hollywood movies are terribly sentimental, but the sentimentality isn't justified. It's a very melodramatic film, but it's based on something real. There is a studio executive in Hollywood who came, no, an agent who came to the set the day we were shooting this in Pasadena and looked at the clip from The Bicycle Thief on the screen and wondered when we had shot it. She did not know this was a classic Italian movie things we do. <laughs> the writer in this case has got the power because Griffin Mills is a guy who wants something. 
Griffin is acting subservient to Kahane, but of course it's just a strategy. Don't fuck with me, Mel. I'm not fucking with you. David, I said I'd get back to you, didn't I? Yeah, about six months ago. I thought you'd forgotten. You were angry. Vince D'Onofrio, he's an actor I like very much, and I, he's a very strong, passionate actor. My vision of Kahane was always that he was skinny, wiry, bright glasses affecting the uh, graduate student look. This Kahane is a great Kahane. Some people say he looks a little bit like me, but my hair is a little bit longer. Here I go to a shot of a poster that says something is waiting, which again is this, in this kind of humorous way of telling you that it's like a music cue. Da-da, it's a stinger. Something's going to happen. Tolkien had written this about a karaoke bar, a Japanese bar. I don't really know why, but we just kept it that way uh, because that's what he wrote. But also, to me, it's helped enforce that thing of the Japanese in the beginning and the infiltration into the industry, so it seemed all to complement one another. When I wrote the book, karaoke wasn't so popular, but the piano bars were popular, so it was a piano bar, then we just upgraded it to, to karaoke. You never got back to me. Listen, I was an asshole, all right? I put the Japanese thing in because it's what Los Angeles looks like to me. It's because the life around me. I, I had no reason other than try to include the world that I see. And Altman, act of complete perversion, then not one person in the bar is smoking. Bob doesn't smoke cigarettes. I'm not going to guarantee I'm going to make the movie, but I am going to give you a shot. In the book, uh, Kahane uh, speaks Japanese. What was cut, again, for time was that Kahane leaves the table, goes to the karaoke machine, and then sings the theme from High Noon, Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, in fluent Japanese, to the delight of all of the Japanese businessmen in the bar, but it was too long and we had to cut it. Now we had to do this scene so that it's logical that Griffin thinks that he really is the guy, he's got the right guy, that sets up that this guy's trying to, gonna eventually kill him, and he's trying to call him off. He doesn't want embarrassment, he doesn't want to have him, he's losing his job, and it's all coming down to this, focusing on this one guy. Griffin's rage comes from his frustration at work and his frustration with the postcards. It's the frustration and rage of possibly losing everything that he's been working hard for, which is just his job and his credit cards and his position and his security and his lifestyle. This was shot at Pasadena. That restaurant is right next door to the Rialto Theater. And all this is right in the actual locations where we say it is. This was the actual first shot of the film, that going underneath the sign as the light turns off. That was the first thing they shot. Shooting at night is harder and it costs more. That's, but you have to do it to get it dark. This was probably about 4 o'clock in the morning. It's me, the writer. For me, the real provocation was always in the bar with less of a fight, less of an argument out here. It might have been too hard for an audience to take and too oblique if Griffin had just sort of 
out of nowhere killed Kahane. So it's better to do it as a fight. I talked to Alban quite a bit about my reluctance to make it seem that Griffin was justified in the murder, and I also didn't like the idea that, that Kahane was a potential suspect. It works better in a film if things are clearer like that. Listen, Larry, guess who's making promises about getting pictures made to writers in parking lots? So we went with this. We were trying to make this, this murder as a problem. Was it a murder or was it not? I think it was not. I think it was an accidental homicide. And I wanted him to drown in this four inches of water. I didn't want him to be strangled to death because it takes too long to choke somebody. And I didn't want him just to die with a head blow. And this actually, this was Vince D'Onofrio's idea, to, if he drown in a little bit of water. You tell Larry Levy to give me a call. You know, the word is out that he's going to start making meaningful pictures at the studio for a change. We did the red light, the back of the theater, the lights flashing on and off. It was all to enhance the drama and to give this the look of a film noir. The tension is increased by all the visuals of it, and these are things you've seen in other movies. In the book, he hates the postcard writer for the postcard writer's moral superiority. In the movie, that's not quite the issue. Although, of course, Gahane is going to a fancy art film, so some of that might still hold true. No, you okay? I think that the way Tim throws Vincent D'Onofrio against the wall over there is so violent that it goes way beyond self-defense and into the, an expression of his blind rage so that the murder really does become a murder and not an act of self-defense. Right there is the only point you can say, did he hold him down too long or did he not? This isn't as unbelievable as the death in A Few Good Men. I work with my instinct. I don't know why I decided to put a red light. Suddenly, it came to me and said, yeah, let's put our red light there. Okay. I tried to recreate the interior of the Japanese bar. You have that amber also that is outside. That's recreate, that link, the bar and the exterior. Suddenly, it all come together. After, when you look at the film, you say, yeah, it's funny, it worked with this thing. And you never thought about it. Why is that? You don't know. It's, it's, part of the, it's part of the game. Here, the music's helping me. Now he decides, I've got to make this look like a robbery. We reestablish the girl by having her picture in his billfold. He really is trying to uh, cover his tracks. And it makes it look like somebody was breaking into his car. But you don't really get that until later when it comes up and how kind of smart and logical that, that move was. The way movies are done, yes, and motives and the way scenes are done. That moment there where Griffin knocks the window out, it's a pretty good boiling down of Griffin's ability to think strategically. It's a good example of it. So that even in a crisis, or especially in a crisis, his awareness becomes heightened and he becomes a better thinker. If the book and the movie are about anything, it's about a person who becomes a better man for having killed. In now you start hearing up over him, you start hearing discussing fatal attraction. 
who wrote the new ending about this thing of rewriting endings. So now I'm starting to get my ending of movies theme working in here. And they're talking about that money is the important thing in everything. And here's the meeting. It was our first test. Excuse me, Walter. Um, Joe, Griffin still isn't in, but I really think we have to start this meeting. Okay, sir. Thank you. We've got it set up that it's in the afternoon, and we don't know where Griffin's been, and we've been away from him. So now we know that, that they know something has happened. I think we got uh, pretty much the same situation. Keep our noses clean, Walter. This is one of those cases where everybody contributed a lot of really good ideas and it came alive. These actors are really, really smart. Wasting the picture. Where did that come from? And Bob is brilliant at creating group improvisation. Every actor in the scene is wearing a separate radio-controlled microphone so that rather than having to deal with all of the sound that comes from the table on one track, the sound mixer can isolate all the voices so that people continue to talk sideways and then the levels can be controlled so that you can follow a conversation around the room without the actors all having to watch each other's cues. This gives the actors tremendous freedom just to say whatever they feel like saying. The actors make perhaps too much of improvising. Nobody can improvise a story. All they can do really is improvise dialogue within a scene. If they go off the intention of the scene, then the scene dies and you can't use the scene anymore. What an actor can really do is improvise a couple of good lines and good color, and it can amplify the mood of a scene as long as they stay to the intention. And this is one of those scenes where there was some really brilliant work by them. This and the scene in the police station with Whoopi and Tim. Not at this studio. Million, million and a half of these scripts, it's, it's nuts. And I think avoidable. I wanted to reveal or to show Hollywood. What's Hollywood lighting-wise? What's Hollywood in terms of framing, in terms of movement, in terms of a style? Especially on the interior lighting. So I've decided that the overall look should be a little bit subtle, but a little bit diffuse. So I use a filter a little filter to just give that little texture of diffusion. But you don't see it. It's really subtle. But it's not a crisp look. It has to be sunny because of the kick of it. You know, it's a joke. California, Hollywood's always sunny. That's why they came here to shoot. So I made a point to make my interior sunny and try to play with the contrast. But still have that kind of diffusion little soft, subtle diffusion. How about uh, Mudslide Kill 60 in Slums of Chile? That's good. Triumph over tragedy sounds like a John Borman picture. You still have a happy ending on it, the script will write itself. Fine, here, give me the pick. You're forced now to tell almost all stories in the same way. You have to build the story very quickly. You can't rely on the association by images. I mean, they're more rigid than the novel. They're more primitively narrational than the novel. You have to really be strict when you write a screenplay. You can't digress. You can't count on the audience's basic interest in your way of telling things to stay with you throughout the telling of the story. They want to know what's going to happen next, or they want to see what's going to happen next happen quickly. 
I was just thinking what an interesting concept it is to eliminate the writer from the artistic process. If we can just get rid of these actors and directors, maybe we got something here. This scene was probably the best written, the clearest written scene in the script in the beginning. When Walder comes into his office and tells him, again, without passion, that they're there to help him. Walder Stuckle probably thinks without question that he committed this murder. Doesn't care why or if. His job is to keep him from getting caught. We cover a lot of the holes in the script about how's he going to get away with this. It's a good one, too. It's about a writer, sort of. David Cahane. David Cahane? Who's David Cahane? Oh, you met him. Well, I meet a lot of writers. Walter Stockel is based on a guy I used to see standing in front of Universal whenever the Writers Guild picket line was sent to Universal during a strike, I think, in 1985. I had worked at Universal, and I used to see this guy sometimes uh, around the lot or in the commissary, uh, sometimes sitting with big executives. And I don't know whether he was a studio security person or whether he was an operations person, but he was clearly someone who was there just to kind of keep order. I'd be stuck on this guy without knowing any more about him than that. You know, Pasadena homicide doesn't think it's bullshit. They got a complete report. You met Kahane at the Rialto. You got drunk with him at a Japanese restaurant. He left before you did. That's the last time anyone saw him alive. Except you, maybe. Why are you denying this? Fred Ward is a terrific actor, and he'll take an attitude in a film like this, and he plays, there's something he does, he just plays these things so honestly, yet he knows he's playing a movie character. Old movies, the 40s, 50s movies. There was a fight, he was killed. I didn't kill him, Walter. But I went to see him. I know I said I didn't, but I did. When Francis Coppola owned Zoetrope, and Zoetrope was based at this little studio in Hollywood, this was Coppola's office, east of Highland. Just what I need, a little more controversy. Just not a good time, Walter. I like the notion that it's a world without alliances, and that it's a story of betrayals and betrayals. I've been spending a lot of time lately trying to understand what writing really is and what it's really mapping out. And, and I suppose on that level, that gets a dumber question, which is at the same time really important, which is what is life? What are these narratives and what are they really about? And sometimes it seems to me that we're just mapping flows of energy that move amorally. They may be completely random and they may be a pattern or the pattern may just be mere coincidence. The nice thing about being able to write novels is that you don't really need to justify to yourself anything else except that you've got the great opportunity to try to work these formulas out for yourself in narrative form. What do you think? What is this? It's called the third degree, and if you don't like it, wait till the police start asking questions. I'll go to the police right now. now. You come with me. You come with me. Now, you're acting like someone who's guilty. You're not guilty, are you? Last time, I'm not a murderer. That's the Hollywood communication now, faxes and car phones. That's part of all of the grammar of what's going on. Tim ad-libbed a little line here, which I always liked. He said, oh, Stuckel says, what is it? And he says, just the facts, ma'am. We had to cut it. There comes a point when you're editing a film from three and a half hours to two hours where you, know, you have to cut another two minutes out of it, and then you start cutting seconds here and seconds there. Robert Altman, 
I did put that dead fish in there. I'm not quite sure what it means. I didn't realize all those little fish were going to be there eating it. That's the black comedy. This was shot at the Hollywood Cemetery, the big cemetery where Rudolph Valentino was buried, and Douglas Fairbanks, and all sorts of folks. It's right in the center of Hollywood. Particular murder, and it is to society that we must look if we are to have any justice for that crime. Michael Tolkien. Phil over there was the voice of the postcard writer. That was an afterthought. It wasn't planned when we hired him, but when they were looping voices at the end, when they were when they needed a voice for the the telephone, it was somebody's idea to use this guy again, and then that wrapped it all up. So he repeats the phrase, another shitbag producer. Very few people guessed that on their own. And the next time we sell a script for a million dollars, the next time we nail some shitbag producer to the wall, we'll say, that's another one for David Kahane. While we were shooting this scene in the cemetery, there was a very sad woman who was tending a grave nearby. She was horrified that we were shooting in the cemetery and really angry, not just at us, but at the owners of the cemetery for letting this happen. She started screaming what Walter Pigeon and Frank Sinatra did to her when she was 19 years old, but I can't really get into it. Through the grimy room. And here we established Lyle Lovett the first time, this character who's following him. Purposely, we went out for this with Lyle Lovett to make the audience set up a red herring. The audience says, oh, that's got to be the real writer. And actually, this is the real writer. That's as far as he got. That's the last thing he wrote. I am a big fan of Greta Skakis. I like her. I wanted June Goodman's daughter to be a foreigner, to be an alien. I wanted her to be somebody who didn't really exist. The most difficult thing I had with Greta was she said, I want to know who this woman is. And I say, this isn't any woman. This is a figment of, of Griffin Mill's imagination. And she said, well, how do I play that? And I said, well, since it's my imagination, uh, we just have to talk about it. But she said, oh, I don't want to play a perfect woman. I said, this isn't a perfect woman. This is a woman who probably doesn't really exist. was Red Sea. Oh, yeah. She was trying to always anchor it into a real person. And I said, you know, you don't know this person. There are people like this, I'm sure. You've got to know that you're made up, that you are responding. You probably only exist in Griffin's imagination because everything she says and does serves his purpose. It's almost like he's writing her as he goes along. So again, we've got another movie inside of a movie. Person to see him alive. Yeah, the police told me. Well, not quite the last, surely. No. In the book, June was also fairly nonchalant about the death of Kahane. She didn't really love him that much. In the book, you knew a little bit more about his background. He'd been a cocaine dealer who had gotten out of the business but had made enough money to pay for this house. He was struggling professionally as a screenwriter. He wasn't a very good writer. She was pretty sure he wasn't good. It was a relationship that was pretty much over, uh, I think, before the book begins and before the movie begins. So his death does not really disturb her that much. And I think in the book and in the screenplay, a little more was made of how detached she was 
from the grief around her and how Griffin's coldness gives her comfort because he isn't trying to give her any phony comfort. Will you take me home? Sure. When people die, sex becomes interesting because it's all part of the instinct of procreation. But again, she's an icicle. I wonder if that shark is in some little homage to David Brown for producing Jaws. Sidney Cooper is a painter. She and Greta collaborated on these. Greta was very involved with this. Greta's father is a painter, an Italian painter, and these are not unlike the kind of things that he has done. So they all did this together. I couldn't sell these. They're never finished. Vicky? This whole scene is all about the lack of existing morality in her and in him, and she, in a way, is excusing him. It's, she, in a way, is saying to him everything he wants to hear. She's talking about being an artist, the type that's unknown to him. When you kill a man, one of the things you take are his women. It was set up earlier in the thing when she talked about Greenland and Iceland. She says Vikings came over to, to steal their women. There's this whole instinctive mystique about taking over the spoils of the vanquished. Why was it so important to see David that night? What was so urgent? One of the best examples of, of art created for movies, artists that I've ever seen, it's consistent, it's just good enough so that you believe that she's really an artist, the art has a theme, it's derivative of the moment without being imitative of any particular artist. And you can imagine seeing it on the walls of a gallery somewhere. And it fits Greta. It looks like Greta. Up. 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 What does that mean? As opposed to down. Moods. Oh. You know, happy as opposed to sad, hopeful as opposed to depressing. What did you think of his ending? I never read it. They're always talking about movie values. There's a piece of nihilistic philosophy that he would like to hold on to. And letters. But I'm not crazy about complete sentences. Hmm. So what did he think? He walked out on me, actually. I don't think David liked me very much. I think he just didn't like happy endings. The happy ending thing, of course, I keep laying in all the time. They are key phrases. Great. The Polaroids are just another reminder of what I'm doing, that I've got a camera on these people, that they're taking pictures of each other. Pictures are important, voyeurism is important, and yet it's practically there because she uses Polaroids in her art. So it becomes a mix. In the movies, you can't have thieves as heroes, can you? Well, I don't know about that. We have a long tradition of gangsters in the movies. Oh, yes, but they always have to suffer for their crimes, don't they? Oh, we should pay for our crimes, shouldn't we? This thing of paying for our crimes is almost his guilt about it. If you don't suffer, maybe it wasn't a crime after all. Anyway, what difference does it make? It has nothing to do with how things really are. 
There's another key phrase. It has nothing to do with how things really are. And what she's saying is that none of this is real, including her, yes, especially her. It's just what I feel. You know what you are, June, whatever your name is? You're a pragmatic anarchist. <laughs> pragmatic anarchist. That was Tim Robbins' line. He's shocked because here's the girlfriend who didn't pay attention to her boyfriend's art. I just picked this up. Yeah. Whoopi called me and said, I want to be in this movie. And I said, Whoopi, I don't have any part in this movie for you. And she said, I could play that policeman. I said, well, I hadn't thought about that, but if you want to play the policeman, you got the job. So we made her the policeman. Sorry, my partner. Willa Broom. My pleasure. Let's go in here. Yeah, this is the first real movie studio Detective Avery's been to. Oh, really? Well, aside from the Universal tour, you know, when my family comes and I always take them out there. Mm -hmm. I've been out there so often, I kind of feel like I'm ready to direct. <laughs> this scene is so much of the book that I think it's almost word for word what I wrote in the novel. The woman on the left is Susan Imschwiller, who was the set dresser. Why didn't you? Walter asked me the same question, and I wish I had a better answer for it, but all I can say is that I didn't think about it. Hmm. Now here we have the standard interrogation scene of the cop and the suspect. We brought up the points that we knew that we had to answer, but mainly I wanted to set up the feeling here that she thoroughly is convinced that he's guilty, but that she doesn't know how to hang it on him. And then in the middle of this scene, we add this element of, again, Lyle Lovett, the guy who's following. So it is to carry on the suspense theme and still getting this information across. Why didn't you stay longer? Well, the people stopped singing, and then it was just a bar, and I don't drink. Drank with him? Well, went in Rome. He's very arrogant in this scene. He thinks he's got it all together, but he's making lots of mistakes. He gets caught up in all these things, but never enough so that they can actually prove it. And luck is what it was. He was lucky there was nobody around when that accident happened. It was just... He was very lucky. I just have to ask you, did, did you see him in the parking lot after you left? One of the things that I like about the film, looking at it now, is how youthful it is, how much energy it is, how untired and how unfrozen everybody is. Most movies are so rigid. And he's got a more European-style close-up where you see them from the waist up, at least their shoulders to the middle of their chest. Thank you. OK. Come on. 63, Wait, Mark. Now we come into this scene, which is actually it's the dailies that they're watching. So again, this is parody on films being made, film within the film within the film. That's right, Peterson, the fucking CIA. You ever heard of it? Well, Willie understands what It's just the kind of operation those whiz kid fucks. I just don't understand what he's trying to go for here. I, I guess I don't. It's not hard to listen to your argument when you don't, you don't even understand Now we set up a little bit of argument and tension between Bonnie Chiro and Larry Levy. I have to cut because my robe caught on the drawer here. I couldn't help it. We just invented a couple of crummy lines of dialogue for these people to play in a hack film. A half hour of... Scott Glenn and Lily Tomlin just having a nightmare trying to get through this scene, making up, just fighting with each other, quarreling with the assistant director. It's really too bad we can't sell it separately. I hope that's been saved somewhere. Jesus. 
poor Will bastard. Shut up, so many ships about to come in. Well, we can't do this. Money for crack. I, I'm sorry, I don't want to criticize you, babe, but I'm supposed to be having a conversation on the phone. What are, are you talking name? to me? Are the cops still bothering you? No. No, no I don't think so. The dialogue in here with Griffin is almost verbatim what I wrote in the book. It's funny how some scenes just never changed from 1985 till 1992. I was conscious of novels about Hollywood. I wasn't thinking at all about movies about Hollywood. And when I wrote the script, I didn't think about movies about Hollywood at all. Anybody know who Joe Gillis is? He's the character William Holden played in Sunset Boulevard, the writer who gets killed by the movie star. Gloria Swanson. People compare this to Sunset Boulevard favorably or unfavorably, and I can really only compare it unfavorably. Since I think Sunset Boulevard is a pretty near perfect work of art, I couldn't even begin to put the player in that category. I was in love with him. The St. James Club in Hollywood, sort of an English hangout. We're setting up the impending meeting that he's going to have with this writer whom we don't know. And the music and everything else is kind of setting up that we have suspense working here. Now, here comes one of our celebrities, Malcolm McDowell. And I called all the English actors I know and put them in the St. James Club because that's where's logical they would be. This thing that Malcolm does to when he calls him a jerk to his face, that was Malcolm's idea. Again, as I said, Malcolm, I can't tell you what to do. And he says, oh, all those studio executives are all the same. They buy you a drink, and then they badmouth you. He said, I'd like to call him on that. I said, do it. That's what he did. You love it, Dave? I love it. It's just wonderful. Now we go inside the club, and there's Andy McDowell and two of our movie characters, player characters. Again, I have a problem here is I don't want people to think that those are real people. So immediately, Dean Stockwell sets himself up as being one of the characters. And he introduces Richard Grant as a director and a writer. But Andy sitting there is the real thing. She's Andy. And the mural behind them is a mural of Michael Caine and Elizabeth Taylor, and so we're really drenched with stardom. Uh, and you geniuses know each other, Tom Oakley? Of course we do. Oh, yes, hi, Tom. Hi, how are you? Richard is an actor I know and a friend of mine, and I just called him and asked him to do this. I wanted an Englishman for that director, a certain amount of English talent in this country. Now we do the Hitchcock kind of shot. Here comes the guy. We think, oh, this is the writer. And of course, it turns out to be the Lyle Lovett character. So maybe this is the guy that was going to meet him there. Thank you so much for the That was the worst one of the bunch. You got to go, Andy. Come on, honey. We'll walk you to the car. No, it's OK. No, not. Griffin. We'd like to buy you a drink. I, I'm sorry. Have a drink. I can't. I'm meeting someone. Business. Uh-huh. But you're talking about habeas corpus. Of course, of course, of course. Around the time that David Brown called me, and he called me soon after the book was published, another producer called to option the habeas corpus story. And that's a true story, but I wouldn't sell it. Griffin. Andy. Richard Spitz over there. There was another shot where the spit was even much louder and clearer. 
No, this scene was originally at the Polo Lounge, but we couldn't afford it. This was a very low budget. This film was seven and a half or eight million dollars, which is half of Arnold Schwarzenegger's salary. By now, it's made over 20 million. I wasn't too involved in the casting. Tim Robbins' agent gave it to Tim, and then he called Bob and said he wanted to do it. And then the producers all groaned because it was hard enough selling a movie with Robert Altman and now trying to sell a movie with Robert Altman and Tim Robbins, who had just come off of Jacob's Ladder and that hadn't done very well, was just giving us all a headache. And Bob said that he wouldn't make it with anybody else but Tim, and we had already decided we, wouldn't, we weren't going to look for anybody else but Bob. Tim really wanted to do it, and he just demanded it. I, you know, I always believe that the person who wants it the most should usually have it, as long as Tom Cruise doesn't want it that week. You mean you didn't call me? No, I didn't call you. I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm really sorry. Listen, I really am meeting somebody. There's no way I can hear a pitch right now. Dean Stockwell is just great in here. No. And Richard E. Grant, of course. No. I've got a meeting at Paramount in the morning. i got a meeting at Universal 2 well, in the morning. Right. And if you don't hear it now, you're going to lose it. Well, then I lose it, all right? I'd love to make a movie just about these two guys. They're based on people I know, but it's they're the 50th version of them. It's hard to deny that there isn't some specific inspiration, but by the time you get down to the page, you usually start bending and twisting. Jesus Christ. Okay, okay, okay. Uh, we open outside the largest penitentiary in California. It's night. It's raining. A limousine comes in through the front gate, past a tight knot of demonstrators holding a candlelight vigil. The candles under the umbrellas make them glow like Japanese lanterns. Bob and I were in the lobby of a theater once to see a screening of Hudson Hawk. Coming into the theater was Richard E. Grant, and we hadn't yet cast Tom Oakley. And I pointed to Richard, and I said, oh, wouldn't he? That's Richard E. Grant. He's a great actor. You don't know his work. He'd be wonderful for Tom Oakley. Bob said, Richard, come over here. Bob and Richard had wanted to do something a couple of years ago. Bob said, I got a part for you. Richard said, where do I sign? Go on. OK. The DA believes in the death penalty. And the execution is a hard case, black, 19, and definitely guilty. We're in the greatest democracy in the world, and 36% of the people on death row are black. Poor, disadvantaged, more, more. black. This is double tension, and also this movie they're talking about, again, goes back to these politically correct things where we'll talk about the, the way that blacks are misused and are undervalued in our society, and yet we're talking it's a society that does keep them out. It's that double sword that goes through. And, of course, Griffin's ahead of him on this whole story. Rainy night. The car spins out on a road, goes into a ravine. The body is swept away. Now, when the police examine the car, they find the brakes have been tampered with. It's murder. And the DA decides to go for the big Grant's one. Grant's a terrific actor. It really is special. Grant is one of those people. You, you know who he is each time. The audience does, and they say, oh, that guy's wonderful, but nobody knows his name. He finds that the husband is alive, that he faked his death. The DA breaks into the prison, runs down death row, but he gets there too late. The gas pellets have been dropped. The habeas corpus scene is in the knob, in the polo lounge. But one of the changes that we made from the book to the movie, of course, is that we completely sell out. We got to see habeas corpus film, so we got to see the idea sold out. Who's the DA? Ah, no one. No one? No stars on this project. We're going out a limb on this one. You know, uh, like unknown stage actors or maybe somebody English, like what's his name? Mm -hmm. You know, I've written, what, four movies now, and 
Three of them, I suppose, were genre films in a way. Gleaming the Cube, Deep Cover, and The Player are all crime stories. I'm not a fan of mystery novels, per se. There are certain crime writers I like, or suspense writers I like. Patricia Highsmith, uh, James M. Cain. I don't really read too many of the current crop. This is an innocent woman fighting for her life. Julia Roberts. I want to get the Bruce Willis, Julia Roberts thing. I want to plant very strongly in here. And you say this in a close-up, people tend to remember it more. It's not. No, no. There are no stars, no pat happy endings, no Schwarzenegger, no stick-ups, no, no terrorists. This is a tough story, a tragedy. I'm bored with most standard genre movies and keep thinking I'd like to do them my way. But it's very difficult to beat genre unless you're in complete control or unless you're working with somebody brilliant like Altman. This story in the hands of a lesser director would have been a very forgettable kind of psychoerotic suspense thriller. Mr. Mill, the, uh... Who gave this to you? I received it at the front desk. What is it? Now, here I set up this rattlesnake as a symbol for death. It's, um... I wanted something that was very melodramatic and symbolic, very bizarre. And again, it was crossing over into the movie the kind of things that are done in movies rather than the kind of things that are done in very straight, realistic stories. It's an exaggeration. It seems fraught with symbolism. So we're trying to get him in a state of peak here. There's a lot of movie stuff in here because this is about as logical as my aunt becoming president. In the novel, after Griffin gets in the car, he discovers that he's being followed by the postcard writer in another car. And he tries to avoid him, drives through an alley in Beverly Hills. The postcard writer has a gun, shoots into Griffin's car, breaking both the front and rear windshield. And I wrote that in the script. And Altman just, I don't know, he didn't like the idea of the gun. And it was really his call as a director. So we came up with the snake, which for purpose of the story, since we didn't have to then explain away the broken windshield probably works better. And maybe, and I think he felt that in a movie, the gun would be too obvious. The actual shots of the fax machine and the snake were shot in the studio with just shooting down from the top. So the snake was all done separately, but the actual stuff, he was actually swerving through traffic. This was shot all up and down Hollywood Boulevard. The fax machine was put in the car, and we did it with following him with a Another car, the camera was inside the car. Jean Lépine. Of course, we were able to work with a dead snake and a real one, so that make it a lot easier. People here are afraid of snake. I'm not afraid of snake. It's just like another normal animal. I had confidence with the people that were handling it. We didn't hurt a snake. There's a nice piece of dialogue here, which is missing. Griffin is yelling at the snake, kill me, kill me, I'm the killer. That curvy form, which allowed us to cut from the snake to this painting that she's doing over here, and that's nice. Now, 
Now, our purpose in this scene, that he's got the guilts about this whole thing, and I realize that his life was in danger from that snake and the guy following him and doing that to him, and that he's probably going to tell her that he was the one who killed her boyfriend. So this shows that he has a conscience still. If we didn't give him a conscience now, we have no place to go with the movie if he's icy here. So we give him a conscience and we're trying to show that he has real feeling develops for this, this girl that he invented. It's nice to see these two actors with their real bodies in a movie. They're not all buffed and aerobicized and polished up. Tim's got a human body. He's got flesh. And Greta, of course, is pregnant here. I mean, in real life. Not with Gaines, baby. Greta and Vincent D'Onofrio had a baby. Yeah. It's you. See? Do you have snakes in Iceland? Snakes? No, I don't think so, no. You're afraid of snakes? I, I don't know. I've never come close to a real one. You scare the shit out of me. I think it's one of Tim's best moments as an actor ever. In the book, the scene's a little bit different. He wants the fucker, but he knows he shouldn't, and they play with the idea a little bit more. His fear finally becomes more than he can bear alone, and his guilt becomes more than he can bear alone, so he has to go reach out for somebody. The book, I think, he was very aware of being in Kahane's house. And it's one of those things which you can't really play in a movie unless you do something dumb like, you know, pick up Kahane's toothbrush or razor. So it's better to verbalize the emotions, and that's what was done here. Okay. Came very close to dying tonight. He has to reach out and make a confession at the same moment, in order to reach out, he's got to drop his armor so that he can extend himself. In movies, once you reach out, you're supposed to be better for it. In life, we all know that there's no atheists in a foxhole, but when you leave the foxhole, most people don't still believe in God. As soon as you're out of the foxhole, you start bargaining again. Remember that first night we spoke on the phone? I was outside these windows, watching you and... Um, any student filmmaker who wants to really study coverage and camera and editing should really study this stuff closely because this is not work that somebody can do on their first time out with a camera. I can't get you out of my mind. What Altman is doing here is deceptively very simple. It's really complicated. Changing relationship between two people in a small space like this Yes, I am. I want to make love to you. I don't know how to shoot a romantic moment. I think it has to do with what the actors are playing and uh, the way they play it. You're just searching for truthful things that the audience will relate to. This is a very contrived scene, but we try, and the actors try, to make it very believable. You know, everything is, is possible. But we've got him in quite a state, and then she apparently is attracted to him. This is movie stuff. 
it's just the timing, but I feel like I would go anywhere with you. They say exactly what I want the scene to say. and found the best way to write it was just to have them say what it is we wanted to say. Verbal sex. You know, we can't hurry things any more than we can stop them. And she says exactly what he wants her to say. She says it's too soon. So, as you say, he dignifies the affair. If she said, yes, let's hop in bed, it would be a problem for him. They decide to honor the guy's death to hold their passion off long enough. It is the way we sandbag the audience, but it's the way the character, it's the only thing the character can demand if he's trying to create her into something that he eventually marries. So he's creating her right down the line. He's making her, he's giving her all sorts of nobility here. Like that. She's left the door open for him as she closes it. And then there's her dead lover. So you start to wonder, is she involved? Did she have something to do with the snake? Is she involved in this plot against him or what? Yeah. Get me Larry Levy on the phone. I don't think he's on the lot. Try his car. Isn't he a fox? He used to be, not anymore. Robert Altman. These studio players, they deal in power, and power is the only thing that means anything to them. The money isn't real, nothing's real, it's just power. That's what they play for. Who can get the most number of chips on their side of the board? Everybody who's ever seen a movie knows this, where the one guy sets the other guy up for the fall. We're talking about studio politics, and he's now setting up his enemy here, or his competitor, to take a fall. We open outside San Quentin. It's night. It's raining. Michael Tolkien. Peter Gallagher always gets cast in these slime roles. He's a really nice guy. And he was, I saw him in Broadway in Guys and Dolls. He was wonderful. He has a beautiful voice. Lone demonstrator, black woman, steps in front of the limousine. Her eyes connect with the lone passenger. That was my location manager, actually, who dressed like that. And I said, go out and jog down the street. No stars. No Schwarzenegger. No Pat Hollywood. Bandings, no car chases. This is an American tragedy. In which an innocent woman dies because that happens. That's reality. I love how Richard Grant, at this point in the pitch, he's already holding props from the desk. Yeah. I don't know. It's a really hot story. But what, what is this bullshit no stars? Let me give you a little tip, Larry. Levison came to power on two movies and made $300 million and had no stars in them. No movie stars, no cheap Hollywood ending. Now, these are our guys with integrity. Has anyone else heard this? I don't think so, no. We should make a deal now. Tomorrow may be too late. Can we get a hold of Levison? Yeah, I'll get Levison. Uh, when can you be back? I'll be there right after my AA meeting. And that's oh, the big laugh. The AA joke is the biggest laugh in the picture. I mean, you can clock it. The Mercedes, which Larry Levy drives, was originally going to be Griffin's car, but Tim Robbins is 6'4", and it looked like uh, G.I. Joe driving around little black slipper. We gave him the Range Rover, and which actually fits much more appropriate, much more accurate. It's accurate because the Range Rover is the car of choice now for everybody in Hollywood. It signifies earthiness and machismo and a disdain for gas economy since they get 12 miles to the gallon and cost more to fix than a Porsche. They look happy. 
They have a completely fucked up idea that has no second act. If I hadn't heard it myself, I never would have believed it. It's a game. They're playing the game hard right now, if it's a poker game or whatever the game is. Basketball is particularly also a Hollywood sport. Everybody loves the Lakers. They will. See, Levison can't wait to get in bed with Levy. This piece of shit idea will blow up in both their faces. And then I will step in and save the day. We just end this by keeping alive the Lyle Lovett character, which again brings us back to the threat that we've always had. She's receiving the last rites. The DA discovers that the husband faked his own death. She's innocent. He races to the penitentiary, but it's too late. The pellets have dropped. She's dead. He helped kill the woman he loved. Peter Gallagher was my first and only choice for this part, and Peter did me a big favor by playing that. He's a terrific actor, and he's just a, such an easy guy to work with, and he gets right into the part, and he plays it the way the part should be played. He's not concerned about how he looks or if he comes off as heroic or not. He's a real actor. Listen, normally I'd agree with you, but this is an entirely different kind of deal here. It is a matter of taking a risk. They all know who these guys are. They deal with them all the time, and so all Peter did was say, you know, I got it, I know who he is, and I don't know who he had in mind or if he had anybody particularly in mind, but he's dealt with this element all the time. Not a stretch for Peter. I'm going to be looking at jail cells and gas chambers. We're going to have to have a little sex in this mystery. Oh, yeah, sure, of course. We'll get it there, no problem. Okay. Who's going to shepherd this thing? Brian James, I cast in this because he plays heavies all the time. He never plays a straight guy. He was a replicant in, in Blade Runner. Who else better for the head of the studio? I just think we should write... Bonnie, this will have to be my call. It's fine with me. My plate is full anyway. Larry, it's yours. Hit a home run, win an Oscar for the home team. The end of the pitch. Griffin, I've got something else for you. Yeah. The head of the studio doesn't have to be subtle. He's in the catbird seat. Levinson is the character. The, if he's the boss, he runs the studio. He doesn't have to be subtle. He can blatantly talk about what a commercial hack he is. So he's very blatant about what he wants in the movie. Pack your bags. Congratulations. Yeah. That was the most well, amazing what about the museum part? Part? Listen, if you don't want the responsibility, it's fine. No, I'm going. I really want to be one of your soldiers. This is just to show the general corporate game being played, that here's the Bonnie's assistant, and immediately you see her working in, trying to get into Peter's camp, because she sees him on the way up, and she knows she's not going to get anywhere working for Bonnie, because Bonnie's got the job she wants, and so she's putting her oar in right now. Oh, I just thought Larry had a firm grasp on the style of the piece, that's all. The only thing Larry Levy has a firm grasp on is his dick, and you know it. She's the only person who changes in the film, and she has a conscience. She's not very smart, but she thinks she has some integrity and tries to deal in integrity and thinks other people should. She's fooled. She's a buffoon, I think. But she's the one person that we really can care about. You've been stringing me along like one of your goddamn writers. What is this getting Levison to send me to New York? What is that about? Are you trying to get rid of me? I'm trying to get rid of you? I'm trying to help you. If you score in New York, you know, Levison has to make you a vice president. She's not the winner. Well, she's ultimately the winner because she gets out of the game. Compare this with May. She would be the 
Hot Lips Houlihan character. It's not just this. It's a lot of things, Griffin. It's the way you've been acting lately. Something is going on, and I just want to know what it is. Jesus. What he's really avoiding here is having any personal confrontation with Bonnie because he's all tied up with this girl now whose boyfriend he has murdered or he's killed. Now he's sinking deeper and deeper because he tells the really ultimate lie here. Have a good trip. The theme of entertainment tonight, and we shot this stuff with Cher and of this gala the way entertainment tonight would have shot it. We didn't give ourselves any break. It was as bad as they do. We invited all these people. They paid to come and be extras. Most of the people did. We invited these celebrities, and we told them just to behave. And we had the room pre-lit, and we just moved around with our cameras shooting what they did. All this was improvised. We'll leave it to share to wear fire engine red when the impossible to come by invitations call for black and white only, please. Hi, Terry. Nice to see you. Yes. Jean Lepine. The nightmare gala. Huge. And no time to shoot because it's a real party and a real dance and it's a real thing. It's a benefit. And you have to shoot it as part of a feature. How do you like that? So you have to decide of your angle and then place, put your light, overall light, and cross your finger and be ready with your crew. So if there's something happening, they're ready to move in to make the coverage. It's like going to combat, you know? In the book, it's a big fundraiser. I think it works really well, because if it had been longer, it would have been a set piece that would have taken attention to itself. And as it is, what's nice about it is that here's this big crowd scene and it just gets sort of tossed away. So we gave Griffin a speech to make that was hypocritical, because that's what they do at these things, gala celebrations. I'd like to extend my thanks to the patrons of the Los Angeles County Museum. And a really, really great thing with Greta and Nick Nolte that was also cut. Greta doesn't know anything about Hollywood. She hasn't been in a movie in years, and she says to Nick Nolte, what do you do? You work in the movies. And Nolte's very gracious and kind of has this little shy smile, and he shares with everybody at the table, and he says, well, actually, I'm an actor. And she said, oh, an actor? I was an actress once. I acted on a play in high school. We want great films with long shelf lives. Now we bring in the MacGuffin again, as Hitchcock says, the MacGuffin, our stalker. And his speech, of course, he's, what he's saying is the exact opposite of what we have seen and know that they really do. To maintain the art of motion pictures as our primary mandate. There was some wonderful dialogue with Cher and Peter Gallagher that was cut. Now, more than ever. Thank you. He's got June out in a regular normal date. So he's flaunting her, and he feels pretty safe with his secrets here. My prop man just got me hundreds and hundreds of postcards, and we would pick them up as we use them. That's my handwriting on them. <laughs> I wrote the postcards physically. One of the ideas, as I'd intended it, was that just as you've got Lyle Lovett's point of view of them so that you realize they're being watched by him, 
I wanted another point of view handheld that was clearly the postcard writers so that at certain times you realize even Lyle Lovett was being followed by somebody without knowing it. But it didn't make the cut. They work very well together. Tim and Greta really had a handle on how to make these characters come alive. And then, of course, later in that sex scene we do, that's as good as I've ever seen it or want to see it. This is some street in Westwood near the Mormon Temple, just south of Little Santa Monica, a couple of blocks west of Prosser. This is coming back from the high school prom. He's got on his white jacket, she gets her key, and they push off the sex. It's too soon. He wants to take her to neutral territory. Should have no shadow of her ex-boyfriend. Soon. Mm. Very soon. How about Mexico? Mexico? Neutral territory, Acapulco. Acapulco. Later, he mentions Puerto Vallarta. He never takes her any place, so maybe he's not telling the truth there. Maybe this is, again, part of his player that he always knew where he was going to take her, which was someplace very close to home. Anything to cut the deal. This house that this guy lives in alone is a little big for a bachelor, but that's the way that uh, we wanted to show him. All these tensions are like, is he going to kill him or what? Is he the writer? But they're, they're all false. Nobody's really going to get scared about this or serious about it. Can we try to put him now back in a very realistic, ordinary, undramatic mode? Actually, if Aubin had intended the shot, uh, the bars to symbolize bars, it probably wouldn't have worked as well. It would have been too heavy. Anytime we use bars like that, it helps plan in your mind that the audience's mind that this is this guy's in jeopardy of going to jail, and it's just visual symbolism. It's pretty obvious. Great. Well, what do you want, Detective Delongree? I'd like you to come down to the station. Why? To look at some pictures. Pictures? Mugshots. Everybody knows the lineup. Everybody knows mugshots. They know all these terms because they've seen it in hundreds of films. You can't take this kind of behavior seriously. This is movie behavior. When people start talking about, come on down to headquarters and look at some mug shots, and I mean, that's not real. And the audience knows it isn't real, but it's movie real. Let me go. Ah, Mr. Mill. Hello. How are you? Good to see you. Everybody, this is Mr. Mill. You Good remember you him. Again? He makes movies. Hello. Have a seat, Hello. Mr. Mill. Now we get down to the police station, and he's got a problem here. He's got to face these people. We're trying to be funny with it. First thing he does, he goes into the private office, because that's what he would normally do, and he realizes he's being dealt with not by the boss. He's used to dealing with the boss. Your desk? <laughs> Thank you. Sorry, have a seat, Mr. Mill. This was shot at the Pasadena police station where they uh, had just abandoned and moved into new quarters, and so these buildings were all empty. Pasadena police were very cooperative, so we ended up shooting where these scenes were supposed to actually take place. One of us, one of us. It's Lovett being an eccentric, quirky character, but it's also Lovett the character playing his part to throw this guy off. 
you happen to see where the tampons went that were in here? Because I can't seem to find them. I didn't take them. You, who took them? Did he take them? The famous tampon scene was actually made up, written, devised while they were lighting the set that day. What do we do? And we sat down like we would in a little theater and we devised the scene. I don't know where most of that stuff comes from. I know Fred Ward was involved in it and he wasn't even in the scene, but he was there that day. And we were all just kind of working it out the way you work out a skit. Pictures. Tim Robbins or Fred Ward's idea when we were doing this scene, and they're playing good cop, bad cop kind of thing with uh, him and distracting him. This is a reverse sexual harassment. I'll, I'll get no, it. no, that's what she's here for. It's all right. Have a seat. Sorry. No problem. Okay. Can you take a look at this? These women now are talking about tampons, and he's sitting there in the middle, and they're, all they're trying to do is rattle him. Oh, wait a minute. No, no. These aren't mine. These are slender regular. These are yours. Some people didn't like that, and I could never understand why anybody wouldn't like would be playing with the tampon. It was, oh, I've been taking a big risk because the scene might have worked without it. Within the scene is dialogue that was basically in the novel and in my first draft. But... Whoopi and Tim are both writers, and they're both brilliant. And once Whoopi came up with this Tampax thing, the scene got this frenzy built into it. That's what they do. We don't do that here. Remember last year? What was that guy's name? They put him on the tape. What was that? King. That's right, King. He was the wrong guy. Conventionally, I think there was enough suspense in the scene. Suspense plus her attitude. But that's what's so interesting about the film, and what was interesting about making it was seeing how far you could take an idea where the balance is in a scene. Most movies have a very sort of reverential attitude towards their scenes and don't want to play against them and don't really want to play with them too much. And that makes most movies very constricted or even constipated. So here, as the scene gets crazier, you wind up having a lot more thoughts. You're aware of yourself more as an audience, that's risky for a film because then you can become so aware of yourself that you suddenly become aware of the artifice of the film, then you're outside the movie, you're not in it anymore, and the film has to pull you back in. Last night? Yes, I did. Have you guys known each other a long time? No, I spoke to her for the first time the night Kahane was killed. Wow. There's not much really reason for this scene. There's no real police work. It's not advancing the plot in any way. I had Whoopi, and I wanted to take advantage of her. I think it's pretty direct. Did you fuck her? Well, I wouldn't answer that question without a lawyer in the room, and then I probably wouldn't even answer that question. Mm. Why don't you ask your friend here? He's been following me all over the place. He'll probably know. It's a little duel between Whoopi, the policeman, and Griffin, the suspect. Hoot my hurt him? I didn't see him. Well, see, he got away with it. He didn't what are you implying? I'm not implying anything. I asked you a direct question. Did you fuck And I told you I wouldn't answer that question without a lawyer in the room. I wrote Tim's speech about what is this Iran, you know, his indignation. And then Altman had them laugh at his indignation. Look at that, you know. You can't write that look in a movie. That, uh-huh. The most you can say is doubtful or skeptical in parenthesis. What is this fucking Iran? Since when does the state tell us how long and with whom we can share our grief? We started turning the film a little more surreal at this point. 
I mean, by actually having them laugh at him in this hysterical way at the end of this and then really confusing him. What the fuck are you laughing at? <laughs> this is the tightest close-up in the film, but most movies are just a little bit wider than that all the way through. They use the context of the physical space just as a, as a setting for the jewel of the face. That fish, his agent gave us so much trouble. But we finally got him to work for scale. He was a Pisces. We've got him in the gangster wardrobe and the black shirt. If you went to Pasadena with intent to kill, you could go to the gas chamber. I went to Pasadena with the intent to hire. So you say. Stuckel is the blue-collar guy who's got himself in the executive suite by virtue of knowing what skeletons are in what closet. There's always one of those guys around. He does the dirty work. Gordon Liddy. It's a risk. Why? Because Larry Levy could have my office in three days. That's what Walter thinks. You know something I don't know? You're pretty smooth. That's me on the right and my brother Stephen on the left. Altman, to punish me for some reason, didn't give me a close-up. I had so much fun acting in this scene, and I really thought I wanted to do a lot more acting until I saw the dailies. And I was so upset with how gawky I looked and how bad my voice sounded and how I didn't move like an actor, how just how clumsy I was. And I don't think I'll ever act again. Hey, I got the Tom Wolf book. Congratulations. Bonnie, make him give us a deal. We want a home. We're tired of shopping everything around. Using Michael Tolkien and his brother as the writing team, the Schechter brothers that came in, was in the same spirit that we used Buck Henry and Joan Tewksbury and Alan Rudolph and those people. They are real writers. It was a little incestuous since that Michael did write the book and the screenplay for this. When I came into the picture and brought a, my approach to it, he, in essence, turned the picture over to me and said, what do I do to help you make my picture? All the way through it, he was supportive of everything, the changes that I made. I said, you know, a lot of authors get a little upset when you start changing words and things like that, but Michael's a filmmaker, and he knows that you can't go out and shoot the script as done, that when the actors come into it, they change things, that new words are necessary, things happen. Bonnie Shiro is the film's conscience. She was the only other actor that I really had any role in casting. And I just felt for Bonnie Shiro that I thought it would be really great if we could get a woman who was really funny and had done comedy, and I couldn't say why, and then they got a lot of tapes in of different actresses, and Cynthia had done this really funny series for Fox called My TV Show, and that's how she was cast. Otherwise, it was all Bob and Scott Bushnell. Uh, you bring your passport? Yeah. It's, you want to something funny? I forgot mine. I like characters who are more realistic than I think June is. A friend of mine in Los Angeles is, uh, she was born in America, raised in France, has a French accent. I think she has an American passport, and she loves the character because the character is very close to her. So uh, where I thought that we might have pushed something into the unrealistic, for someone else, the character is quite accurate and one of the few characters this woman has ever seen that actually reflected what her life was like. You'll like it there. It'll remind you of Iceland. 
Michael Tolkien. We shot this scene at Two Bunch Palms, which is this really great resort out in Desert Hot Springs near Palm Springs. The scene was originally set in Mexico. They're supposed to get on a plane and go to Mexico for the weekend, but we couldn't afford to go there. And then Bob said, maybe we should put it on a boat. Like they've got a rich friend who's got a boat and they go out to Catalina, but the boat seemed too expensive. And then I was in Hawaii uh, on a vacation and the phone rang and it was Altman and he said, guess where I am? And he was in the Al Capone suite at Two Bunch Palms. Thanks, I've been going out to this place for 15 years, and I was really surprised that, and there's a lot of movie people go out there, and I was really surprised that we were the first film ever to use it as a location. Robert Altman. Now they start calling him Mr. M down here. Well, if you remember, that was what was on the poster when the, the title M, the murderer, the worst crime of all. Now they're calling him Mr. M. So you know that he's been there before many, many times. It's a place to take ladies that you're not married to for a rendezvous, and it's opulent. I want to show this place as, as very private, and you hardly see any people here at all. But they're not there alone. This is a commercial place, very exclusive. There aren't many people around. Well, they're fully booked, actually. There's 50 rooms, 100 people. There's a hundred people there. Where are they? They're in their rooms doing what we're gonna do. A couple of Banning Springs water, please. Right away, Mr. Now, there's our last water that we ordered, Banning Springs, which is the only one we made up. That's not a real water. The rest of them are legitimate, and we'd run out of them by then. There's another shot of nudity that was obligatory to make his thesis work. Greta Skaki was not going to, there's going to be no nudity with her, because that's what everybody thinks that there's going to be. I gave you the nudity, and it has about the same value as it does in most films. It's meaningless. Everybody likes the jokes about all the bottled waters. Different people will take credit for this, but as far as I can tell, this came about because we thought we had a deal with Perrier to give us all the water for the film. So they shot a scene with Perrier. Then it turned out that they didn't have a deal with Perrier, so David Levy, the associate producer, who was in charge of getting these donated items for promotional purposes, then called another water maker, like Remlosa or Evian, one of the others. And at that point, they had two or three different brands of bottled water. Tim and Bob and David, whoever was there at that moment, decided to just keep the gag running. In terms of how to give credit to any particular individual in a film, it's impossible to, because one person will come up with half a phrase, someone else will complete it, and someone else will then top it, and then something wonderful happens, and who takes credit for it? Person three would not have thought of it if person one hadn't had a bad idea. Collectively, we hear about 50,000 stories a year, so it's hard. The message is ambiguous. We're not here saying that these guys are bad. We're talking about what the system is and what it breeds and how we've all been seduced by it. We've all, everybody in this country has been seduced into thinking that we're all doing the right thing, that greed is part of our program. So to make it a parody and just make it a joke, I don't think uh, I would do that. I don't think I would be interested in that kind of film because 
with all of the exaggeration and caricature in this film, uh, I'm talking about a serious condition. And if I don't make this guy real, if I don't make some reason for us to like them, uh, how can I ask the audience to care about what happens to them? Actually, what the audience is identifying with is not with a real person, but with real people they've seen in movies, real characters they've seen with movies. Everything they show in a film, everything's loaded. You're not catching the girl without her makeup. You're not catching the guy when he's kicking the dog. You're catching him at the points that the author wants you to do this. I'm trying to always bounce the ball back and say, oh, well, you're laughing at this, but what you're really laughing at is yourself. Now we go to the obligatory sex scene. I shot this all in close-ups on their faces. I said, let's just make it as erotic and as real as we can. She was wearing some kind of a running suit, a track suit of some kind. We shot two takes on this, and everybody went home. Jean Lepine. The sex scene, what's important in a scene like that is what the spectator will receive and what they have to receive. Do you want to show body? If you want to show body, it's because that's important. The body is important. But in the scene, that scene, that was not the case at all. Griffin, he was there, but he was not there. He wanted, he didn't want, she wanted. She didn't want, it was a mystery about it. So I said to Bob, you know, I would like to do it in just close up. Just for skin and mouth and eyes and let them go and I'm just gonna follow it. Something I have to tell you. I don't know what the audience's expectations are except that this is the way I chose to show the scene. I didn't wanna show these uh, scenes that I've seen time and time again in movies, which is simulated sexual intercourse. And by getting in very close on their faces like this, we thought we should show the passion. And it actually, it's a very erotic scene. It's a very good performance. The whole idea of having this scene was, of course, is that during this sexual event, he feels obligated to tell her that he, in fact, did kill her boyfriend. During this, she says, don't tell me, I don't want to hear this. So which leads me to believe that she probably suspected or knew it all along and just doesn't want to deal with the reality of that. Well, I certainly don't always know what's in the mind of the characters. I mean, many things are in the minds of the characters all the time. And these are not cardboard people. We try to do this as realistically as possible, and I think this this idea of trying to make this confession at the time that he's making love to her is quite a thing. It sets a lot of questions and poses a lot to your mind. Coming out of this love scene, we went to this, it's, it becomes almost a laugh, but it mainly what it was for is to relieve the tension that a scene like this will create. Death masks and those look like graves. This again is metaphoric that it, here they are in a mud bath, and that's what their life is. They seem to mistrust one another in these looks. It's the last time you see them together, except at the end. She seems very wary of him. I'm not telling the audience that everything is happy, everything is good. Critics can carry on forever about this, and I like to give them mud for thought. Something very bizarre and surreal about them being in a mud bath with this stuff smeared all over them and all over their face. 
And here's our male nudity, which I felt was absolutely necessary. If we're going to show any female nudity, I think that we're obligated to show a little bit of male nudity. Tim is not really circumcised, but because we wanted to make a film about a, an uncircumcised executive, they spent a lot of time fitting a prosthesis onto his penis to make it look like he was uncircumcised. <laughs> Nothing's been decided. All we know for sure is Reggie Goldman went home with a clap or something. Now we take care of Reggie Goldman right there, that he's gotten some sexual disease and his little sojourn is over. Okay. I tried to, Tech, but... You didn't try hard enough. You better be at the Pasadena police station in about four hours. I've always wanted to do this scene in a movie where the guy has a mud pack on his face. And I've been planning on doing it in another film and then it showed up here. I was really happy to see it here because I liked the image, but I was a little disappointed that Altman got to my idea in my film before I got to use it in a film I was going to direct because I can't use the image now. Good luck. Thanks. Here he comes in and he's defeated. Looks like he's pretty sure that whoever this witness is is going to identify him. Actually, he's wearing the suit that he had on the night that he killed the guy. So he's done everything to help himself get caught. It's almost as if he wanted to be caught. The lawyer in the wheelchair is just, again, another movie thing about to add color. You keep seeing all of the lawyers and Ironsides and those guys. And this guy was a marathoner, however. Kevin Scannell, he's an actor, he's a very good actor. He's not, does not use a wheelchair regularly. Even if she makes an identification, a positive ID right now, even if that happens, it's very late at night. By the time I'm finished with her, the world will have a whole new legal standard for blindness. When I wrote this line, and the world will have a whole new legal standard for blindness, it always gets a laugh. And even when the movie is translated and seen it with subtitles, it gets a laugh. I never really thought it was that funny a line. Because I saw you clearly this time. There was an interest from a network in franchising her as a character, not using Whoopi, but just this sarcastic black woman cop from Pasadena. It's very hard, you know? Oh, yeah. Number two, take one step forward. I mean, I wouldn't want to pick the wrong one. No. Suddenly, we see that Lyle Lovett's in the lineup, of course, which every moviegoer knows they put policemen in the lineup. And the woman who's the witness there, very few people will recognize her as the woman they saw a couple of times around there in Pasadena. But if they do remember her, it validates the situation. Now we stretch this out for a little bit and set up the dilemma. He expects to be caught. This is a good scene because, you know, his entire fate is in the hands of this woman. At the same time, it's also a funny scene because of the offhanded rhythm. And it's a lucky scene that can be funny and suspenseful at the same time. Not since Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein have we seen such funny suspense. Um, uh, it's not number six. That much I know. Three. Three. Number three, now the audience starts to get what's going to happen. 
about this time. And she picks the cop. And of course, this is a laugh, just in irony, and then again in relief. And it also says something about witnesses. Here he went down there expecting to get caught, and he didn't get caught. Suspense and humor are what we're trying to deal with here. It's not real suspense, but, but <laughs> we hope the humor is real. Who the fuck is your mother, Barry? <laughs> Everybody, let's get out of here. Let's get right, out let's of out. I just like the idea of putting the uh, lawyer in a wheelchair, you know, like Ironsides. Although what I originally wanted was to get a racing wheelchair, but we couldn't get well, we couldn't get the right kind, where the wheels angle in a little bit for marathons. And that's why he's wearing that athletic outfit, a residue of that notion. He got away with murder. Then I go to this shot of the people who know he's guilty but can't do anything about it. And it's a perfect chance to do my fade out, go into one year later and make the cut to these people and we find out we're in the gas chamber. Now, of course, the people we see are Susan Sarandon and Peter Falk and what are they doing in this movie? It's a pullback, it's a dolly shot. And then you come down, you realize you're on death row, and there goes Bert Remsen, he's the old retainer in there to check the gas chamber out, and we pan over to the cell, and there's Rene Auberginois and Louise Fletcher, and Ray Walston is the priest, and there's Julia Roberts. And now people start to get it, my God, that's Julia Roberts. So now we're watching a movie, and these are all the characters in the movie. I've seen the film in France, and I've seen it in Brazil. And Julia Roberts, as soon as we see her face, obviously in France they know her, but in Rio, they knew her too, and she got an immediate laugh. They knew what was going on. She's really good here. She really acts, you know? She, was, she didn't just show up and goof. She worked. We screened the film for a lot of different audiences. We screened it in West LA for friendly audiences, audiences of friends. You can tell when a film is working and when it isn't, and when good laughter suddenly gets sour. This was shot on a set, the one set that we built. Steve Altman, my son, who's the production designer, built this in a warehouse in Santa Monica. He totally reproduced the, that's the way it looks. San Quentin, California. Actually, they have a double up there. They have two chairs in it. Why, I'll never know. But we use the single chair. Steve, we've worked together a lot. He's worked with me since he was really young, and he's been an art director since oh, A Perfect Couple, and then he designed the sets for A Fool for Love, and he did Vincent and Teo, which is a period film. I'm very lucky if I can get him. He did a particularly good job on this, but he always does. Julia Roberts and Bruce Willis were my first choice. That's who I went after, and that's who I got. They were very generous about doing this. Come on. 
And it had to be Willis Costner or Mel Gibson. It had to be one of those three. I don't think we went to anybody else. I think we went to Willis first. For this movie, he's, for Habeas Corpus, he's the best choice because of the way he jumps over that and the way he handles the gun. He's better able to make fun of himself in a sequence like this than anybody else. Traffic was a bitch. There's Larry Levy in, watching his baby. We don't know what's happened to Griffin. You, you sold him out. I can't believe it. How could you let him sell you out? I mean, what about truth? What about the reality? What about the way the old ending tested in Canoga Park? Everybody hated it. We reshot it, now everybody loves it. That's reality. That's my pet peeve of these test audience things they do, taking a picture to Canoga Park and letting a bunch of teenagers tell you whether the film's any good or not. Richard Grant is me. He's like all of us that, that go in with these noble ideas and we're going to do everything uh, for our art, but when it comes down to th the money, at the end, why, they sell out. We're not laying all of the blame onto the commercial, the executives. We're laying it on the artists as well because we're the ones that allow this to happen as much as the audience demands it, and we service them. This is as much of indictment on me and my own behavior as anybody else's, because if it wasn't, then what would I be doing, standing here throwing rocks at people and pointing fingers? We're all guilty. I think one of the things we liked about Cynthia was that she was so likable, so lovable, and so decent, and I think it made her seem, if anything, it made her seem very un-Hollywood, or certainly very much unlike somebody you meet at a studio. So, of course she was doomed. Griffin's secretary, and she's now moved over with him since he's now the head of the studio. The Dina Merrill character, Celia, is still the executive secretary, and she's just perplexed by all this behavior that she sees that goes on around her. She's not in the loop. She's not a player. All Walter stop that nonsense. Griffin, it's Bonnie. She's here. Dina Merrill is so good here. I'm not close enough to that many big executives to know their executive secretaries, but she's really so solid. She gives the part so much dignity. We got in a lot of trouble for having those Oscars in the background. We got a letter from the Academy saying that we used those Oscars without permission and they weren't at all nice about it. And we had to apologize. You're not allowed to use them. The Academy set some rule because they'd been, I don't know whether an Oscar had been used as a murder weapon in a crime show, but. Yeah, I guess you'd get in a lot of trouble if you had like somebody brain Snow White with an Oscar. <laughs> The ultimate humiliation. We get our ambiguous sign in again. Now, this is uh, back to the same scene that uh, was earlier in the picture when they had Larry Levy on the phone. Now they've got him on the phone. The pacing and toward, as we come up to the end of the picture, I mean, this is what editing does, the editing and the script and the way we set it up. But it's now I want to race toward the end. The audience has seen the film. They know what's happened, and we want to get it going as quickly as possible. We still have a couple of surprises left. You. Yeah, that's right, the king of suspense himself. You remember me. I haven't heard from you for a while. The question is, are we meant to like Griffin? The answer is, of course. I like him. 
It's easy to be mad at Griffin when he screws Bonnie at the end, but by that point we should recognize that Griffin is us so that when we see him screwing someone, when we see him hurting somebody, we realize that we do the same thing too. So then we should be thankful to Griffin for pointing out our flaws so that then we'll become better. I understand that everybody who's seen the movie is just a much nicer person and, you know, are fair in their dealings with everybody around them. It's just one of these things which heals people every time they see it. The more they see it, the better they become. That's why they should spend $110 on this laser disc. All of us who worked on the film are infinitely kinder now to each other and to the world at large. What do you call this thing, anyway? The player. The player. I like that. This is actually the same ending that was on the film MASH. They announced the movies. They said, tonight's movie is MASH and announces the cash. In other words, the film you have just seen is the film that you're about to see. And here we do the same thing. We say the film that you have just seen is the film they're talking about, and it has a happy ending. This is the fairy tale ending. Well, the whole thing's been a little bit of a fairy tale. Griffin's house is, in real life, is Dina Merrill's house. The ending, of course, is very different in the book. The postcard writer has gone up to Seattle, sends him $1,000 for breaking the windshields of his car, and then Griffin pulls into the house. You don't know exactly what's happened to him until he decides that he's going to take the $1,000 and put it in his wife's car, and it's the car that used to be David Kahane, so you know that he's married June. We changed it because in the book, he doesn't take over the studio, and we decided to let him take over the studio in the movie. It was better to show her pregnant and to show them going into the house this way. You don't need to see the car when you can see her. After they see the player, most people start leaving like 20%, 25% tips, 30% tips at restaurants. It's just something that happens. Nobody wants to be cold and dead, even if that means that they've got beautiful house, beautiful wife, beautiful cars, rose garden, and fame and security. They realize that, you know, what does it profit the man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? And nobody wants to lose their soul, so the only proper course of action is compassion and, and humility. A happy ending. That's what everybody likes. I'm loath to use this term, but actually I think it fits. It's a movie that in the end really does deconstruct itself. I think that's one of the things which is nice about it. The film is very cyclic. It's strictly a metaphor. It's a film about film. It's of film. And I use Hollywood as a metaphor for what I see as the biggest malady of our civilization right now, which is greed. Trying to accomplish things just for the sake of winning chips in the game. Humanism has kind of disappeared, and we're all judged not by what we do that really helps our fellow man, but what looks like we did the best in the rules of the game. And the rules of the game are pretty meaningless. When our art starts to reflect in terms of accomplishment and what we admire, it tells us what's wrong with our society. I mean, we don't admire teachers. We don't admire people who do things that help other people, and ourselves included. But it's fantasy, the Milkins, the Lee Iacocas, the Michael Eisners, the people that make $200 million a year. And that seems to be the goal. That seems to be what we tell our children to admire. And there's some accomplishment in that. It's difficult to do, but there's no accomplishment in making 
$200 million, you can't use it. So why? It's all right for people to make that sort of money, but I, don't, I think they should be sort of disliked for it. I kind of like this thing where we don't like rich people too much. Here we are in an art form, a commercial art form, but we're in it, and we're admiring all the wrong things. And this film is just, to me, just an essay. It's just a reminder. The Player is a horror film about our society. Unless we stop being players, we're all going to come to the same terrible happy ending that he did, which means he's soulless. It should have been an Avenue Pictures release, but Avenue went bankrupt, and so they had to sell the film. And we then went through this fantastic orchestrated ballet selling the film to the studios. And in the end, none of the major studios bid enough for it. So a film that started as an independent film was released by an independent studio.